In this middle place between International Human Rights Day, December 10th, and International Migrants Day on December 18th, I sat down with mi hermano, mi compañero, Camilo Perez Bustillo, the executive producer of Witness Radio, to discuss the recent tragedy in Chiapas, Mexico, when a trailer overturned and crashed, claiming the lives of 55 of the human cargo it hid inside, and leaving more than 100 others injured. The global community, in particular the U.S.-Mexico alliance, laid the blame squarely at the feet of an international network of human smugglers. But in this first charla, or chat in English, which Camilo and I hope to continue to do on a regular basis, we draw connections between the deaths in Chiapas, the U.S. Migrant Protection Protocols, or Remain in Mexico program, the unresolved humanitarian crisis on the border of Poland and Belarus, and the secret detention centers in Libya, funded by the European Union. Please take a listen. Every time a border is closed somewhere in the world, a mm-hmm. cash register opens. Witness Radio. We have MPP starting back up, the EU outsourcing the job of managing migration to a failed state, Libya, which has created these secret detention centers where people are being sold into slavery, extorted, tortured, and murdered. And I feel like the United States is doing much the same by externalizing the job of managing migration to Mexico, saying it's a safe country, which we know it isn't. And what I was curious about is you were at the Global Compact? It was the... uh... The diplomatic conference that was held, the international conference that was held in Marrakesh, in Morocco, in December 2018, you know, the same year as family separation, as zero tolerance. And it was, you know, the eve of MPP. It was, you know, we were on the path towards MPP. But what was going on globally was um, it was one of these typical, you know, UN driven processes to come up with a new international instrument, as it's called, you know, an international law, not a treaty, but, you know, a pact, it's called the compact Mm -hmm. focused on migration. There's another one focused on issues related to refugees. And it was the culmination of about a 20 year process of trying to create a framework that many have referred to as the framework of global migration governance. You know, that's that's the language that's used. This is exactly the same language that the U.S. and Mexico have been using over the last year, you know, during the Biden administration, because now now Mexico and the U.S. are both signatories to this compact. And what they claim is that what they're doing together through MPP and indirectly through uh, cooperation as to Title 42 reflects the Global Compact's emphasis on safe, orderly, regular migration. It's what the UN has referred to in the last couple of days in response to the tragedy in Chiapas, the death of the 55, has Mm -hmm. referred to as the need for, quote, controlled migration. 
And yet they're outsourcing this control to places like Libya and 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 now Mexico. And the the meeting was in 2018, but we can trace this phenomenon in Europe back to 2015, at least if not earlier. Yeah, in fact, you know, it's interesting. The term uh, you know that's used by migration studies people is securitization, right? It's, it's imposing the imperatives of what's referred to as national security on migration policy. That, that term was coined in 1999, looking mm -hmm. at the EU. So the, the, the roots of this in the EU go back to the 90s, and they go back to the 90s in the US. I mean, basically, everything we're seeing now at the borders of the US and at the borders of the EU, you mm -hmm. can trace back to the early 90s. In the mm -hmm. US, you know, it started with NAFTA, basically, mm -hmm. and obviously that's where Mexico kind of, uh, you know, joins the, the room, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with the EU, it's the consolidation of what came to be called the common border policy and mm -hmm. the creation of its own, in effect, migration police, right, Frontex. Uh -huh. um, and, and so, I think what's, what's interesting about all of this is, you know, we just had the the flare up at the border between Poland and Belarus mm -hmm. at the margins of the European Union. We just had the boat sinking in the English Channel, mm -hmm. all this within the last month. And mm -hmm. now we have the tragedy in Chiapas and the, yeah, the same week, right, mm -hmm. as the reactivation of MPP. And, and they're the all issues. And I think that's the only issue is obviously the need is to connect the dots, but very few people anywhere, either in the US or Europe or in between are connecting the dots. Right. But and you now, said you said in this presentation that at this meeting in Marrakesh, you said, <clears throat> I heard the development of externalization with my own ears. So framed as a security need, securitization, we get effectively externalization of migrant flows, which is externalized to the next to the closest neighbor, and the closest neighbors are all corrupted states. Right. And let's just step back for a second. I mean, you were referring to Libya. The meeting that I was referring to was in Morocco. Mm -hmm. Morocco plays exactly the same role with yes. respect to these policies as Libya does and Turkey do. They're they're the big three, so to speak. Right. Um, and they're the ones that make it possible for the EU to externalize and regionalize these policies of control. And that's the model that the US and Mexico are busy implementing as we speak. Again, right. the language might vary slightly, but the essence is the same. And what's, what's absolutely clear, and even the International Organization for Migration, which is the, the UN agency now for migration issues, it just became that within the last two or three years, precisely with regard to this process of the global compact. That's why they're taking on that role. They're basically the... Uh, the enforcers in some sense of the global compact and even they have said 
that there is a connection between what happened on the ground in Chiapas mm. and these broader trends that we're talking mm. about. But mm -hmm. but I mean that that's only that's a conversation among specialists, right? But but in fact, let's let's also be clear. The reason they're making their, that connection is what they're saying and what the UN Secretary General's spokesperson said at the briefing that uh, focused on this issue, that focused on the implications of Chiapas, what that spokesperson said and what the IOM is saying is, ah, now that we have this tragedy in Chiapas, this is the moment to shift explicitly in the direction of a controlled migration model. So they're, they're making the, the connection for us, so to speak, but not enough of us who are advocates or who are witnesses or who are people on the ground engaged with these issues are making the connection in the same way. Right, right. So another question that I wanted to ask you about is that the UNHCR has come out very strongly against MPP this time around, kudos to them. But the IOM, which sits under the UN, does it not, is going to take on the management role. So how do we square that circle where these two um, organizations that are presumably in the protection business are split, one saying we cannot abide by this because it fails to protect, and the other saying, yeah, but we'll take care of it for you. We'll manage it, which in my mind, given what we've been talking about thus far, management means stopping people, sending them right. back right. or detaining them. Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I think if you step back, it's actually not that unusual for UN agencies to disagree with each other, but at least in this case, you can explain it partly by the fact that they have very different mandates. I mean, UNHCR is by far, you know, the senior partner, if we look at those two, and it's very, very specialized, of course, as to refugee issues, you know, since 1951. And they see their role as being sort of the, the defense of the, the idea of refuge as, as a principle of international law and non-reformment. And I mean, they basically, they, there's no way they can ignore the fact that all of the human rights experts who've looked at MPP in practice and at Title 42 in practice um, say that it violates directly or indirectly, you know, by intention or by effect, the right to seek asylum. It makes that impossible. So I think basically UNHCR was backed into a corner. They have to take that position, you know, harder or softer, they have to take that position. IOM has always been different. It was only integrated into the UN within the last two or three years as mm. part of that process related to the global compact. They have much less clout and weight in terms of human rights. They've never been really uh, uh, an organization and an institution dedicated to the defense of human rights, you know, unlike UNHCR. They're much more, um, I would say, uh, like a, a functional kind of organization that tries to make migration work in cooperation with sovereign states. And that's their thrust. It's not human rights. 
And that's why, for example, when it came time to drafting the Global Compact, that document that was adopted in Morocco, um, human rights got very mm -hmm. little substantive attention. If you look at the text of the Global Compact, it's very weak in terms of human rights. Because of course, it's an interstate document, right? You had, you know, a hundred states or more sort of negotiating line by line. And um, states are not comfortable, as we know, with uh, mandatory human rights standards around their decisions as to migration policy. And it's taken them 70 years to get used to that in terms of refugees, but they look at migrants as different, you know, as ultimately as lesser, right, as less entitled to rights. Mm -hmm. So really what this is all about in practice is that the migration flows that are coming from Central America and the Caribbean more and more, just like the migration flows that are coming from Africa and the Middle East to Europe are mm -hmm. mixed flows. They don't fit easily into the framework of refugees, but they also don't fit into the traditional framework of migrants. They're somewhere in between. And basically the UN system is not set up to address their rights. Okay, and so they so fall between the cracks. So we're at a crossroads in, in human history right now where there was this convention adopted 70 years ago to support uh, folks then fleeing from war. And um, it, it cannot keep pace with the situation on the ground today is folks fleeing from drought and heavy rains and dictatorships, crippling, crippling poverty, the violence of poverty, discrimination. So we, we don't have a framework to deal with, with these people who are now on the run, who are now in motion. Refugees doesn't label them properly, neither does migrant. Or we could say that they're all refugees. Well, I think the bottom line is this. This is what makes the victims of the tragedy in Chiapas vulnerable and ultimately disposable because they don't fit those traditional categories. And so essentially they are unprotected. And that's what makes it possible for Mexico and the US to get away with what they're doing through MPP and through Title 42, and especially through externalization, through making Mexico the wall. It's absolutely clear. If you look at the coverage in Mexico and in Guatemala over the last few days of what happened in Chiapas, everybody understands what's going on on the ground. There are 13,000 Mexican troops and security forces deployed throughout Mexico's southern border region to contain migrants. There are checkpoints everywhere. The border is in effect militarized just as it is in the north. And yet this truck and dozens of more like it got through. So what right. explains that? Because walls create organized crime. You know, the 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 bus driver who used to just be transporting people can now extort people to carry them. And so the 
the the bus driver turns into a trafficker maybe not necessarily with evil intentions but the the wall all these walls have never done anything more than embolden organized crime and create crime commodifying the migrants which which you know i'm going to push back just a touch on what you previously said because even at the signing of the refugee convention we had folks like Hannah Arendt saying, but wait a minute, you haven't put people on the move in this convention yet. You've only defined people by virtue of the state that they're attached to. And once they flee, they're no longer attached to a state, right? They're in motion. So they've always been sitting outside of the definition of, of refugee, haven't they? Yeah, and I, and I think the way we can sum it up in terms of where that gap is today, I mean, Hannah Arendt was right in 1951, and she's right now. Mm-hmm. But, but how, does, how does that work in practice? This tragedy in Chiapas happened, you know, the, the early morning of December 10th of International Human Rights Day. That's when the news spread around mm-hmm. the world. We're moving soon to the observance at the end of this week, December 18th, of International Migrants Day. Mm-hmm. The migrants who died in this tragedy are unprotected by both. They're unprotected mm-hmm. by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in practice, and in practice, they're unprotected by the International Migrant Convention whose anniversary is going to be observed on December 18th. So that gap continues. Absolutely. Hanad and Sword then, we see it now. But the bottom line is that the connection is even stronger, I think, than than maybe you suggested between these policies and smuggling, trafficking, and organized crime. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think what we have to say is the following, is that every time a border is closed somewhere in the world, a mm-hmm. cash register opens. Oh, that's right? that's it, so perfectly put. And the profits soar. We yeah. know, I mean, you can track what it cost six months ago or three months ago before mm-hmm. MPP and what it costs now right. for migrants to get on that truck yeah. or to get to their destination. And so those prices are skyrocketed the same way every time they take down some drug cartel leader, the next day on the street, the price of the drugs goes up. It's the right. same thing that happens. But in this case, it's the price of human beings. Yeah. And I think that's that's the other thing is that, you know, one of the big major announcements that was made jointly by the US, Mexico, and Guatemala in the immediate aftermath of this tragedy is, okay, now we're gonna crack down on the people smugglers and the traffickers. How? By closing the border even more tightly. Yeah. Knowing that to do so is to strengthen the people smugglers and the traffickers. They know that. Yeah, no, that was my next question. What? They must know it. We know they know it because it's been documented in any number of ways that they know it, going back to the San Fernando massacre and and earlier. So what's in it for these nation states to continue to trounce on the human rights of real people with real dreams and beating hearts when, you know, basically every strand of 
today's migration policies, if you add up all the lives that are ruined, is getting us pretty close to, it's certainly major crimes against humanity, if not genocide. So what is in it for these states? You know, I think there's two layers to it. One is states only act um, when they feel that they have the power and the right to act. And so as long as you're dealing with an essentially unprotected, unrepresented group, they will continue to act as they choose because there's no political price that they have to pay in the sense of a, of a constituency that has vested rights that are generally recognized. That's the only thing they really care about in practice. And so particularly from the perspective of, you know, who, who are the driving forces here? It's the US and Mexico. It's obviously not Guatemala. Guatemala plays a very subordinate role in order mm. all of this, sadly. From the perspective of the US and Mexico, respectively, there is not a significant political price. And in fact, there's a political benefit to them for closing down their borders, for containing right. these flows, for repressing these migrants. As long as that's true, they're going to continue to do it with impunity or until they're held legally accountable in their countries and internationally for pursuing these policies. And so right. that's where we can weigh in. We can raise the cost of their criminality, because this is criminality by the US and criminality by Mexico as states. That's how it's framed in international law. These are international crimes that clearly fall within the definition of crimes against humanity. And many of us have argued should be understood as a form of genocide, migrant. Mm -hmm genocide. That's mm -hmm. the headline. That's what those bodies wrapped in white at the roadside in Chiapas signify, just like the bodies of the migrants massacred at San Fernando 10 years ago and in Camargo, Tamaulipas, just soon a year ago in January 2021, as the mm -hmm. Biden administration was beginning. The year began with a migrant massacre and it's ending with another. That's the framework we have to understand. And so if they're not gonna pay a political price, they have to pay a legal price. And so what we have to do is mobilize all the pressures possible through media, through public opinion, through mobilization, through protests, through witnessing, through our voices and our consciousness to raise that price. 100%. And the reason why I'm writing this book, the first solution, because you can't get to a final solution without a first, a second, and a third in the words of the late, great Toni Morrison. But Sarah, I also wanted to mention that there's another layer. I mean, so I was, I was, I guess, trying to address your question in two dimensions. So one, I just tried to address, which is this issue about sort of the rights of the unrepresented and how to make those heard. Mm -hmm. That's one layer. Mm -hmm. But the other one mm -hmm. is that there are two things that are going on at the same time. And I think that's really clear if you look, you know, really closely at what's going on in the Mexico-US context and in the context of Europe and the EU. Mm -hmm. That is that on the one hand, migrants are more necessary than ever 
to mm-hmm. the working of the economies in those regions. And that means that the, the goal is to make their labor as exploitable as possible. And so the oh. more unrepresented people are, the more unprotected there are, they are, the more you can exploit them, the more you can extract profit from them. So, mm-hmm. so there's a consistency ultimately to the logic of that lack of protection. That lack of protection pays off economically because then it's lower wages, it's workers who aren't unionized, it's workers who can't, uh, for example, consume resources in terms of public services or in terms of pensions. So, so mm-hmm. it's like it's, it's a perfect it's a perfect circle, let's say in terms of profit. But the other thing is they are both more necessary than ever essential workers as they've been described in the context of the pandemic, but they're also more disposable than ever because Mm -hmm. of course humans are infinitely replaceable. And so they are both more necessary and more disposable than ever. Mm -hmm. They're structurally necessary, but they're circumstantially disposable. And that's what the deaths on the road in Chiapas are also about Mm -hmm. because they want enough of those truckloads to make it to the border so that the meatpacking plants can continue working mm-hmm. and the other places in the economy, the farm workers that are needed to keep the U.S. economy going. But they don't want too many of them to make it because then the profit margins will go down. So at the end of the day, it is really about labor. I think all of this is literally a machinery of death and exploitation. And, and that those are the only two choices. The only mm-hmm. question is which of those two paths are open for you. Mm-hmm. To the extent that these are people who are essential to the system, but external to it. Mm-hmm. I think that's mm-hmm. the only way we can think about it ultimately. And so it, it, it's, it's a machinery of destruction ultimately, and certainly ethically that- and morally, just like that- slavery was. And that's why genocide is the appropriate term. I mean, what else can you say when, when we hear, as we just heard, I just heard reports this morning from the ground in Chiapas from witnesses who say 95% of the passengers on that truck were from the poorest indigenous regions of Guatemala. Wow. What else can we deduce except that there's a continuity between the genocide that targeted those communities in the 70s and 80s and the genocide they're confronting today on that highway. Right. And the genocide that their forebears confronted when the settlers arrived on the American continent. Right. So it's it's 500 years of this. So this is the continuity, the structural continuity of the Mm -hmm. violence of settler colonialism and today of the neo-colonialism that the U.S. represents throughout mm-hmm. the region and throughout the world. The U.S. and Europe. Of course. That's, that's the other connection. Of course. Um, and yeah. Australia in its environment. Uh-huh. 100%. Yeah. All right. So just to end our charla today, mm-hmm. uh, we lip service continues to be paid to root causes. While the new administration talks about Prosperity and security, but you know the question they're not saying is for whom, and by what means. Um, it's just a, a continuation of the same old neoliberal policies to 
secure our prosperity in the global north. Yet you have many, many people such as yourself out there in the world saying, you know, if we just brought some prosperity to the ground where these people are currently suffering, they wouldn't have to run. So why aren't the global powers spending their money doing that rather than spending their money arming forces to stop people from moving? You know, when people talk about root causes, I mean, I think, you know, you're, you've, you've just sketched them out, but I think what people don't talk about enough is that ultimately the most, um, the, 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 the driving force when you're talking about root causes is human rights violations. If people are denied a dignified life and are living in hunger, poverty, inequality, and discrimination, as they are in these communities of origin in Guatemala, the ones you know reflected in the victims today of that tragedy in Chiapas, then they will move. And yes, obviously the solution is to improve their conditions of life, but this is something that is not in the interests either of their local masters in Guatemala, the local elites that continue to govern that country or misgovern uh -huh. it, right. nor the elites of Mexico, nor of the US. I mean, mm -hmm. what they want is the cheap, pliable, obedient labor mm -hmm. that their system demands. And, mm. and that, that does not equate with people living a dignified life who can be independent and autonomous in their development. They don't need anybody to bring in development from the outside. What they're mm. fighting for, indigenous movements on the ground and movements of people of African descent on the ground in Guatemala, in Honduras, in El Salvador and throughout Latin America, what they're fighting for is autonomous development. They're mm -hmm. fighting for self-determination. But that's obviously not in the interests of their colonial and neo-colonial masters and never will be. And so that's something that can't be negotiated, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, it's, that's a struggle that continues meanwhile. And I think this is the other thing, is the connection that isn't ever made when there's a discussion about root causes is what about the root causes in Mexico? I mean, one of the things that's clear if we look at the data from the border is that the number of people fleeing Mexico is surging. Everybody talks about the increasing flows from Central America. Proportionately, mm -hmm. actually, the flows have increased more from Mexico recently. So what mm -hmm. is going on in Mexico? It's a generalized crisis of human rights that reproduces the crisis on the ground in Guatemala, but is actually worse. I mean, there are more people on the ground whose rights are being violated in Mexico than in Guatemala, both mm -hmm. you know, numerically and proportionately. And so the thing about all of this is that's what makes this idea that Mexico could somehow be safe for anybody, including mm -hmm. migrants. Uh, I mean, not only a joke, but a cynical ploy. How do they, how did the powers that be get away with that, calling Mexico a safe third country? You know, I think there we see the limits of, uh, you know, of the mass media, of the dominant media, for sure, and mm -hmm. also the limits of sort of dominant political discourse. I mean, it's just it's just impolite to point this out 
when you have the president of Mexico, you know, uh, you know, essentially standing up at the Security Council and saying that he wants the UN to implement globally his policies uh, for uh, combating poverty in Mexico. I mean, mm-hmm. it, people in Mexico are meanwhile laughing or crying out of desperation because those policies aren't working in Mexico. And, mm-hmm. and wouldn't work globally either. And at the same time, he's saying he's fighting poverty in Mexico, but he's essentially uh, profiting off of the poverty of Central American migrants by getting aid from the U.S. Right. to stop them. Right. So, so this, so right. it's a good, it's a good deal for him. Right. I mean, he sort of makes it, makes it at both ends, so right. to speak. So anyway, mm-hmm. I think the bottom line is the government in Mexico, the leadership in Mexico, has to be held equally accountable for these horrors. Right now, as we speak, when when Lopez Obrador stood up and expressed his solidarity with the victims of Chiapas, what was being said in media throughout Mexico is, uh, excuse me, this happened on Mexican territory. You're acting as if this happened like on some other planet, not only in some other region, you're not taking responsibility for what's going on in Mexican territory to migrants every day, in addition to what happened in this tragedy and that produced it. So Biden needs to be held accountable. Lopez Obrador needs to be held accountable as well. Not to mention President Giamate of Guatemala. The people of Guatemala have been in the streets for almost six months, nonstop, trying to get rid of Giamate. And meanwhile, Kamala Harris goes down to Guatemala City and slaps him on the back and embraces him and right. says, and together, we're going to stop migration from your country. Right. And, and meanwhile, we up in the global north hardly know what's going on in the streets of Guatemala. Right. Maybe yeah. now people will start thinking about that. I think that's the only positive thing we can say in the wake of a tragedy like what happened in Chiapas is that it, it creates a very brief and narrow opening for the things to be said that otherwise would not be heard. Okay. And so that's why this space is so important too. Okay. And why we're talking about it today. Thank you, Camilo. We'll uh, do this again next month. Thank you, Sarah. We'll stay in touch. Thank you. Un abrazo. Un abrazo y besos. Muchos besos. Ciao. Take care. Thanks and gratitude to Witness Radio executive producer, Professor Camilo Perez Bustillo, our Patreon patrons, without whom we could not produce this show, and to you, our listeners. I'm Sarah Towell, host and director of Witness Radio, where we aim to discuss all the issues plaguing the U.S. immigration system today. This is why we witness. Subscribe, rate, and review Witness Radio on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And please consider becoming a patron of Witness Radio if you haven't already. Just go to patreon.com slash witnessradio and sign up. We'll see you here, there, and everywhere. Witness Radio is produced by Livia Brock.